Today we're going to be uh, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, I'm using the NIV Bible, that's what I've been using my whole faith life, and um, it does translate pretty easily for the, the New King James if you are using that Bible. Um, the, sometimes the sentences are a little bit reversed, but it shouldn't be too much of a problem. Um, chapter 11 today deals with two primary um, sections. The first is prior, pri, propriety in worship, excuse me, and then the Lord's Supper. And um, before I go any farther than that, let's pray. Um, Father God, we just uh, thank you for the blessings of this time we have this morning. We just ask, ask now for open hearts and minds and uh, just uh, looking into the truth of your word, Lord, and uh, being able to find application in that in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there's, I have to say right away off the bat, there's a lot of things that have been going through my mind relative to 1 Corinthians, and I don't think I'm going to remember the things in my head, um, which is good, but um, at least I, I think I have enough notes to get us through step by step in each of the verses. And so let's just uh, look at the word here. Um, first of all, um, to catch up with where we were two weeks ago in um, chapter 10, um, this morning as we look at chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, we see that a continuation um, from Paul's theme from chapter 10, which I think is really interesting message between encouragement, the things that Paul is pleased with, and rebuking the things that he is not pleased with. Verse 13, for example, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Right away, we're seeing encouragement here from Paul in this message, which I just love. A lot of his um, letters that he writes, he starts a lot with praise and encouragement for um, the new believers. Um, there's just a lot of things interesting about the way Paul handles his ministry. And it's, it's amazing when you think about reading his letters and how he rode ahead even when he wasn't in a place. For instance, Corinth, he was not there. He was in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. And he planned to be there in about a, a year or so, um, but he was always writing ahead. In fact, when he write, wrote to Romans, he was in Corinth. And so a lot of those types of things he did. His seven last letters, he was in prison, and he wrote. So seven out of his 13 letters, he's not even moving around or going anywhere. So this is telling me, well, Paul, he had such a heart for the people and for this mission that he was given by God. So that was a pretty cool thing. And also verse 24 in uh, chapter 10 yet, nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. And verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So Paul is emphasizing to the believers freedom, but he also warns from Israel's past. And he speaks of idol feasts and the Lord's Supper. Now let's continue with chapter 11. And uh, here the emphasis on not offending others. There are two main sections I mentioned, pr propriety and worship and the Lord's 
Supper. So I'm going to read the first nine verses, and then we'll kind of go through them, and I'll try to break it down that way, and hopefully we'll get through all this today. Um, so let's start with um, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that you, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved, she should cover her head. Uh, verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. All right, in the first... Um, nine verses here, um, we see that Christ is a supreme example, number one. Christ's followers, his apostles follow his example, and so we are to follow Paul's example as believers. And he sets a pretty high standard for that, I think, when we, when we read what he's, what he's doing. Um, I just want to throw this in here right now. I looked at what Paul was doing in his writings, and his characteristics, which are Christ-like, are these. And these are some of the words that you'll see throughout all the epistles, all, he meant, all the letters he writes. Thankfulness, love, encouragement, joy, forbearance, honor, faith, a servanthood, prayerfulness, and hope. And Aren't those all just great qualities that Paul is bringing to us? And I think if there's an overall message for today, because there is a lot of scripture about reprimanding and rebuking, but to come away and take those good qualities first and understand what Paul's, where his heart is, I think that's a great message for us. The subject of this section is propriety in the public worship, not female, male-female relations in general. Um, in verse 3, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about my personal faith life with my wife, Kelly, and how we started. Um, but the emphasis is not on male-female, as, as stated here. He's really um, more concerned with the propriety in worship and how that looks in the relationship of marriage. And it, it, he does explain that out, and I think we'll get into that without me going any further on that. Um, Paul is concerned, however, that the proper relationship, again, then is between husbands and wives, be reflected in public worship. He desires that all be done to the glory of God. That's a great theme throughout. Um, that was mentioned in the last chapter, two weeks ago. It's all done for the glory of God. So, okay, verse 1 and 2, so Paul is the example of following Christ and encourages and praises the people of Corinth for holding to the teachings. Uh, let's 
go through verse 3, um, the term head in this verse is referred, referring to the concept of honor in that the head is the seat of honor. And uh, this is where, um, when Kelly and I met, uh, in 1993, actually, um, we were both saved. Um, she had been saved for quite a bit longer than I. Uh, Mile High Stadium, Denver Broncos Stadium, and uh, Billy Graham. So she was called before me. But Kelly actually brought me to the Bible church itself. And so there's a situation which I think is common where sometimes women or wives can lead their husbands into into being a believer in Jesus. And uh, it doesn't matter which way it happens because we're all equal in God's eyes. And we'll read that too in a little bit here. Um, part of our passion in our, pre, our marriage ministry, and it was pre-marriage that we started in, um, in around 2002, I think is when we really started that. Um, but we were engaged in 94 and married in 94. She took me to a Bible church and the sermon, the first Bible sermon I heard in a Bible church was how to be a Christian husband. And f for me, that was um, pretty much, that was uh, pretty inspiring considering that we were attempting to do marriage again. I had been divorced in the past and then Kelly also, and she had two children with her. And so one thing she asked of me is that I believe in God and love children. Well, she got that. And so that was, at least I could fulfill that much in the beginning, and so that was kind of neat. Um, so anyway, this was a pretty interesting topic of the first sermon. And then after that, we never stopped, stopped going to a Bible church. It was, it was constant from then on. Um, because of our ages, we, we were engaged and married in six months. Oh, she don't want me to say that, but anyway. I was 38 at the time, and anyway, <laughs> okay, let's see. After, after starting in the Bible church, that's when the learning and growing really started through um, Bible studies. Um, we did Tuesday nights a lot with people, plus the Sunday services that made a big difference in the beginning of our uh, new marriage together. Um, also in the first year, um, I attended a seminar uh, in the Paper Valley in Appleton, um, titled, entitled The Role of a Godly Man, um, put on through Promise Keepers, which Promise Keepers was around a long time ago. I don't know if any of you remember that. Um, eventually, the funding for those, those uh, events just waned, and uh, they no longer be, became effective because of media and technology and everything else, too. But that was very inspirational for me, too, as far as how to be a godly man and, and be in a marriage the right way, the way God wants us to do it. So anyway, that's where our passion kind of got into uh, pre-marriage ministry. Within uh, seven or eight years, we uh, moved on to a different church where Kelly did deaf ministry, and uh, we studied and trained for pre-marriage mentors, and then we've been doing that ministry for 20 years now. And uh, some of the main things that struck me about this verse is in our, in our um, manual for training, um, one of the pages was on the, um, the, man, the man's role 
and his design by God, and then the woman's role and her design by God. And uh, those two things were very much different, and they had their specific design, and there was a list of all kinds of things. For instance, the man was bigger, stronger, more powerful, the woman was weaker, and so they complemented each other, and all the way down the list, these things were listed. And the differences, you know, and sexuality, of course, was one of the differences listed, and they're, they're all there. And um, when I was reading through this and talking about the roles of a husband and wife, it's also a mother and a father, and uh, the responsibility that they have for their children, and mostly God's design for man, and the higher responsibility that's given to the man. And this is where uh, we kind of stress a lot with newly... Um, engaged couples that we wanted them to um, understand their role the way God designed them and how he made us. And so anyway, the bottom line with all that, because this is getting really long with this part of it, is, is that we took it so serious with our lives and our marriage, and we wanted to pass it on to all the young people we helped because we did not want anyone going through divorce like we did. And so that is where our passion is, and um, there's one verse in this whole chapter that's kind of related to the husband and the wife, but interestingly enough, it's used to teach headship and what it means to be the head of your family and, and your place in it and how you're responsible for your wife and your children. God's going to ask us in judgment, he's going to ask us, what about your wife, what about your children? And so we have to be accountable for that. And, and that's the whole point of, of what we're talking about here, is that higher responsibility. So let's, um, how do we understand this verse? Let's um, look at the last phrase, God is the head of Christ. In the Trinity, God the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit are equal in power, but have different roles and responsibilities, different levels of authority. A clear demonstration of the operation of these levels of authority is seen as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Though he asked his father to remove this cup from me, Christ was nevertheless submissive to his father's will, to the utmost obedience, that of being willing to die on the cross. Jesus said, not what I will, but what you will. That's Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Now here in 1 Corinthians 11.3, it is clearly stated that the husband is over the wife in terms of levels of authority. In both the Trinity and the husband-wife relationship, there is equality together with levels of authority. And this is Christ honored God. Man is to honor Christ and woman is to honor her husband. Others see the word head as the idea of authority. In Ephesians um, chapter 1, verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride as a church body. And that's the relationship there. In Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. That part of it, husbands love your wife, that could be stated, I believe, four or five times compared to the other verse because husbands loving their wife has to come first before wives would ever submit. You have to be a Christ-like man. You just have to be. And so these are some of the core things we teach in our marriage ministry, and it's just awesome that it was in here. And so, so that's the side note on, on that verse. Also Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Uh, moving on, verse 4. I'd like to say we're going to try to keep this moving. First use of head. The first use of head is man's physical head, and the second is his spiritual head. Chapter 4, or verse 4 says, Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head. Verses 5 and 6. And every woman who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should, not, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Um, and this is telling us... Um, from the first century traditions and what was going on back then because we know there was lots of sinfulness, idolatry, everything else, and there's so much I didn't want to even elaborate on how bad um, the first century was in some of these um, cities. And uh, we could compare to today and everything else too if we wanted to, but I don't know that we need to do that. Um, there's evidence today's world is just as bad, really. So, I mean, you know, we don't need to really go there. Um, so verse 5 and 6, for a woman to take off her head covering was a sign of loose morals and sexual promiscuity. A shaved head was public disgrace because of a shameful act or openly flaunting her independence and refusing submission to her husband. So a lot of this stuff was going on in the first century um, and these kinds of things. And so to see a woman that shaved or anything was it's automatically a sign of disgrace. Another thing, too, that I should add at this point is um, one of the notes, thank you, sir, and I'm actually going to get the water quick here. Excuse me. One of the, one of the notes, too, which I, I didn't write down here, but actually husbands and wives were considered positions of honor also in the first century. Um, it, it was to be respected. A woman was respected because she was a wife of a Christian man. Um, so this is one thing that was a sign of honor and respect, and yet here they, they made fun of it and, and ridiculed and changed a lot of the thinking, and it was, it was because of sinful and just um, infiltration into the church's teachings from the traditions of that time. Verse seven through nine then, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but, 
the woman is the glory of man. For man, wait a minute here, 7 through 9. Okay, it's three verses, I'm sorry. And uh, then verse 8, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Not, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So this is a relationship that God designed us with, a, de a relationship of equality. Paul speaks to the creation and the order of it from God. Verse 10 through 16 is the next section. Um, I'd want to read through it first, and then we will talk about it. So starting in verse 10, for this reason and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Um, Paul's kind of letting that open a little bit to people's traditions, and it's a, an idea of unity to kind of accept each other a little bit in this area. Um, of course, it was much worse in the beginning church years, the first century, compared to today. Um, there aren't a lot of traditions that we follow in that respect today at all. And so, anyway, we will go through, starting with verse 10, uh, the key word, study Bible, suggest is, suggests angels, in this case, is used to, meant to mean spies or evil demons and a symbol of authority on her forehead to mean an emblem of sub subjection to the power of a husband, a token of modest adherence to duties and usages established by law or custom to prevent spies and evil-minded persons from taking advantage of any impropriety in the meetings of Christians. So this is what really was going on here, is there was infiltration into the new teachings that Paul gave, um, trying to undermine and to change the meanings and a lot of different things. When it starts out right in the beginning talking about because of the angels, that refers to, I think I mentioned it here, and I do cover it again. Um, but when we think of angels, you know, our first thought is uh, angels are all good, right? Well, no, he's speaking of the demons, angels. Um, and this is from before the fall of man, when Satan and his followers were cast out. So there was good and bad, um, and these are the bad that were suggested here. Because of the angels were to have a symbol, so were set apart from the evil ones. It's like good and evil today. Um, nothing really has changed. There's plenty of evil out there, and we have to guard ourselves against that. And so there's a lot going on here that Paul's trying to teach about the improprieties going on. 
um, tokens, they talked about for a woman wearing something as a token that she's the wife of a husband. Uh, today, our example of that would be a ring, right? Because when we get married, we have rings. That's a symbol that a wife belongs to her husband. And also, even the last name. Um, a wife takes on the last name of her husband. So those are kind of examples for today of what happened here. Verse 11, again, Genesis chapter 1, 27. God, God's plan is for man and woman who are to be co-rulers in his creation. This is the basis of everything with men and women. As far as equality, it starts in Genesis, when God designed us to be equal. Um, and so what we've been looking at so far is the extra responsibility husbands have over their wives, and that's why they, they term it um, husbands are the head of the wife. Um, and it's only regard to the responsibilities God gives us as men to lead our families. Verse 12 explains this further. <clears throat> woman from man's rib, man birthed by woman. Men and women are equally are equal in the Lord. We just talked about. Verse 13. As long as customs aren't contrary to scripture or immoral, they should be adhered to for the sake of unity among believers. And that's what we read in verse 13. Um, Paul stressed unity in, in his teaching. Um, there was so much disruption, persecution, a lot of different things. Um, Paul mentions when he talks about marriages back in chapter 7, he talks more in depth about marriage and what that's all about. And he talks about remaining single if you are single and not marrying. And it's because of the persecution of the first century that Paul actually um, addresses how serious that time was. And so, so that's a little different. Um, and then also, um, Corinthians chapter 13, which will be coming up, that talks about love and marriage. Everybody knows the chapter 13 in Corinthians, Corinthians. And so that'll be coming in, in the future. So verse 13, then customs aren't contrary to scripture or moral and for the sake of unity. In verse 14, man isn't given long hair as a cover, covering. Well, it's obvious with some of us, right? So, so we're good there. Um, verse 15, a woman's hair is used as a covering. For today, women, that's fine. You have your hair, your beautiful long hair, and that's a covering. We don't worry about those kind of things. And Paul said he had no um, other concerns or to not be contentious about that. Um, and so there are other beliefs and faiths, and, and we've seen people of different faiths, like the Muslims and such, that the women are almost completely covered except for their face. And, and then the men are dressed accordingly also, um, and they still do these things. Um, but the point Paul makes here is, as we're moving forward, from generation to generation to not offend. And, and that's kind of his point in the whole thing here. And verse 16, then finally, for the sake of the churches, Paul re prefers to see unity. So differences in customs should not be flaunted. And there again, um, we're not to go out and worship and in public and 
try to make a scene necessarily of ourselves. Some people tend to dress in certain ways, and it's not that big a deal today, but back then, there was, it was more of an issue because there was so much disruption in the church. And so that pretty much covers the first half of chapter 11 here. Um, at this time, um, the second half now is about the Lord's Supper and the way that was misused, mistreated. And what I was thinking is, um, so I liked what Pastor did last week, if we could have a couple men pass out the communion elements and then we'll just hold on to those till the end of we're done and then we'll have communion on the end. So if I could have a couple guys just pass out right now and then we'll just hold on to that while we go through this section on the Lord's Supper. So we'll read um, <clears throat> verses um, 17 through 25 next, which is another halfway through the second part. And then we'll break that down a little bit. Let's start in, um, <clears throat> in verse 17. Um, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That's a pretty bold statement right off the bat that Paul makes here. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for the other. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Thank you, sir. Don't you have homes to eat or drink? He's sarcastic here, though. That's kind of cute. And, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from you, from the Lord, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, for which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I'm not sure, but I think this is the only place in the Bible where the Last Supper is being retaught. Isn't that amazing that he has to do this? I mean, when Jesus and the Gospels were with his disciples, this was what he did, and they understood him much more clearly. But here Paul's having to reteach 
what the body and blood of Jesus is all about, what his sacrifice is all about. And so let's take that a verse at a time here. Um, these verses in 17 and 18, Paul, just he begins to address the issues of divisions in the church and the disrespect the people have for each other. Now, there's a lot of traditions and things that went on in the early church, and a lot of times they tried to carry their traditions on, even though Paul taught them about Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He is one time forgiveness for sin for all of us. And some people tended to, I think, think about, well, Jesus saved me now, so I can just go on and keep sinning and live my life the way I want to because I'm saved through faith, you know. And, G and here's where Paul has no praise for, for people like that. And also, the false teachers that infiltrated, they wanted to hold on to the old traditions of the, of the Old Testament traditions and then incorporate that into this new belief, this new way that Paul, Paul um, is teaching that this is a new way. Jesus is the new way, the truth and the life. And so it was a hard thing to grasp onto and to keep going. And that's where Paul's concern was, was with all these churches. In verse 18 and 19, Paul believes the report from Stephanus in part. He says, in part, does he want to give them, the Corinthians, some credit? Uh, I think so. Um, he knows that some are trying hard to, to, to live their faith life the right way. Um, and so he doesn't want to totally disparage everyone um, that they're doing everything wrong. And this, again, to me, is very Christ-like in that Paul, he has so much love and care and concern for these people um, that he's writing to that he doesn't believe all the bad reports. Because I think there was a lot more bad reports than, than we read here. Um, I got the feeling that's what's going on. Um, and so I think he, he does want to give them some credit um, when he is writing this. Uh, are, some are some believers genuine and to be recognized? That's an that's a, that's a interesting question. Um, I think it speaks more to our genuineness in our faith. What's our true heart? You know, we can speak about our faith, but are we living it? That's the bottom line, folks. That's, that's the main thing, is we have to live it and not just speak it. And I think Paul sees a lot of that going on here. And uh, so to me, that's, that's kind of a big takeaway in these two verses, is it's speaking to the true hearts of people. And uh, so he challenges, challenges them on that. Verse 20, not the Lord's Supper. Their tradition of feast has no connection with the Lord's Supper. What was their feast all about? Well, I got a whole definition here. Let's get it through it. A love feast or agape feast was a fellowship meal eaten by Christians in the early church. There is a biblical evidence for the practice of these communal meals during which Christians gathered, not just for the sake of sustenance and socializing, but for the sake of fellowship. And that, that is also seen in Acts 2, 46 and 47, what the fellowship is about. Um, the, the term love feasts appears in the book of Jude, 
the author of the epistle is talking about false teachers who come into the believer's fellowship pretending. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Jude 1.12 describes these false teachers are as blemishes at your love feasts. The ESV calls the pretenders hidden reefs, pointing up the dangerous nature of false teachers and their potential to shipwreck Christians. Hippolytus wrote about communal meals, but doesn't use the word agape, but calls the meals simply love feasts. In some traditions, these meals became associated with other rituals, such as the Eucharist. It is possible that the term agape feast was stopped being used because it became associated with certain abuses like gluttony and favoritism. However, Christians have always practiced communal meals of various kinds. Communion, or the Lord's table, is an ordinance that Jesus gave the church, commanding that we partake of the bread and the cup in remembrance of him. In the context of 1 Corinthians 11, it is clear that Paul equates communal meals with remembering Christ this way. And that is one of the reasons why abusing the communal meal was so offensive. And so these are all good things that we will meditate on when we do uh, take communion together. Verse 21 and 22, eating without concern for others is not unifying, but just consuming. I actually meant to actually read these verses over again, um, and I probably should be doing that. Um, but we're kind of following this, the sequence here, and it does kind of work out too. Um, consuming, and, and that should be done at home. And Paul, again, gets a little bit... Um, the way he words this is pretty neat, I think. But Paul says, one remains hungry, another gets drunk. Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. In verse 24 and 25, Paul repeats the words of Jesus, and so we will also repeat that section during our communion time. And let's see, verse 26. I, I don't think I read verse 26 the first time. Excuse me, let's see here. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we proclaim the one-time sacrifice of Jesus until he comes back again. Um, this is a solemn time of humbleness and reverence. Um, what Jesus did for us on the cross, um, the one-time sacrifice, sometimes we don't always remember how huge that is, how big it is. And if we don't consider his sacrifice and what that means to our salvation, then we may not consider sin so bad. And this is the danger back in the first century church, um, what happened. And this is where Paul wants to stress, let's get it right. This one-time sacrifice, this is different. This is different than all the traditions of the past. And so it was a very hard thing for him to, to try to portray this, this new message. And, um, but it's very, very inspiring to us as believers, and we have the Word of God in front of us today. You know, a lot of Paul's writings... He didn't know they would be in 
our divinely protected word of God, which is our Bible, and there, here they are. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of our Lord. Unworthy manner. And that's kind of a characterization of some of the Corinthians and their agape supper, right? Um, the way they abused the Lord's Supper. And, um, you know, the feasts and, and what we consume together as believers is great, but we never uh, associate it with our communion time. And uh, back then they did a lot of that. Verse 28 and 29 A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Those verses are huge. Self-examination. Any unconfessed sin. We must understand the propitiation of all sin at Calvary. This is what Christ did for us when we share communion. Um, you've probably heard before in, in our services, you know, if there's unconfessed sin, if you're not feeling good about something, um, just sit and pass on communion. That's, that's acceptable for us to, to be careful on that. Um, I like the approach of, of self-examination and, and confessing on a regular basis because even though we are saved people, we still sin, right? And so we still have to continually ask forgiveness from Jesus. And I think that's a great part of communion time. And if we are diminishing our sin and God's wrath towards sin, if not, excuse me, if not, we are diminishing our sins and God's wrath towards sin. Well, I just mentioned our sins. God's wrath towards sin is monumental. Um, he doesn't allow sin in heaven. It won't be there. Um, and so that's where confessed sin is so important. His forgiveness is amazing. His grace, God's grace is amazing. Verse 30, for anyone, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That was 29.30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Again, in the first century, weakness and sickness was kind of tied to... Um, sinfulness. Um, it's interesting that they, they write it that way, um, and falling asleep was a term used for death back then. Um, falling asleep in our time, in our life right now, is a point in my life when things weren't so good, I may have fallen asleep in my faith, right? But then we had a chance to be redeemed, and, and our faith life isn't necessarily a gradual incline, is it? It's, it's more of an up and down. There's times that are tough, times that are, are good. Um, but there again, as long as we're awake and alive to the word of God and not letting ourselves fall asleep on our faith, we're going to be good with God. And that's the important part here. So we are either alive in Christ or we are dead. And that's what I'm kind of speaking to. Is, um, as believers, I think we're all alive in Christ, right? Um, and isn't a lot of the world out there dead? Um, 
just in their life and the way they live without Jesus, without God in their life. And um, that, that can be troubling for us, but that also should motivate us to spread the word of God, the gospel of Jesus. Um, and I believe that's today what we, we need to focus on, just spreading the word of God out there. And we don't have to get caught up in looking at other people, comparing and bringing all the, the sad stuff into the world. And I talked earlier about husbands and wives, mothers and fathers specifically, raising your children. Hold tight to your children and guide them real close right now because we know what, what's happening with children. And I don't want to talk more about that. Verse 31 But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. So we must also have self-examination by judging ourselves, self-reflection, asking forgiveness again and again. This is something too we will focus on during our communion time. And it's a personal self-reflection, and it's one thing I love to do more than anything during communion time. In verse 32, When we are judged by the Lord, we are being discipled so that we will not be condemned with the world. Kind of like we are just talking about judged by the Lord. It's a process of sanctification in our life. And this is ongoing. We're continually being sanctified in, in our faith life. And that's what does separate us from the world. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Again, a reference to the first century agape fellowship meal. Each should wait for each other so we don't offend. No selfish practices. And 34, which I think we're... Up to the last verse already. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. If you are simply hungry, eat at home. Paul warns, his warning suggests that there are other problems concerning the Lord's Supper, and he would address them later. Here Paul is planning on coming back in about a year to Corinth. And he lets it wide open. There's a lot of stuff going on I'm not too happy about. And my impression is it's like the father that says, wait till I get home, kids, and I will take care of you. And, and so I love the way he speaks here. It's pretty direct, but yet it's the love of a father, and that's what Paul um, expresses in this chapter. And with that, I think we will have a communion time next year. And again, let me go back one page. And again, we will read the verses um, where Paul repeats the words of Jesus. And in verse 24, it starts, And when we have given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Let's uh, receive the elements together. I apologize again for my little cold going on here, um, people. And uh, I think we'll just end in prayer here. And then I have a charge from Jude that I, I just loved when I saw it, read the end of Jude's letter. And I want to read that as we close. First of all, Father God, we just want to thank you for this worship time you gave us. We thank you so much, Lord, for your word, your written word in front of us that we have. Um, thank you for our hearts that are open and our minds that are open to continually learning, growing, sanctifying our lives. And uh, we just pray, Father God, guide us in, in our faith life and um, show us which way that we should live and uh, carry on in our life today with our friends and fellowship around each other. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And the doxology in Jude then, the charge for today to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the one, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Peace be with you. You can go in peace. <laughs>